I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. More often than not now, the hit songs at the top of the charts will have the chorus right at the front to hook you in. Because attention's so scarce, because there's so many distractions, Wealth of information leads to poverty of attention. Because we're dealing with this imbalance, I got to hook you in. So rather than give you the time to build a song into a verse, into a bridge, into a chorus, screw that. Shove the chorus right at the front and hook you in. And if I can get 31 seconds out of your attention span, I'm making bang. The backdrop to this for me is my favorite song by the band U2 called Where the Streets Have No Name. It takes two minutes and eight seconds before you hear Bono's voice. Do you think any millennial today is going to give you two minutes and eight seconds before they hear the vocals drop or they're going to hit the skip button? Welcome to another episode of The Andy Rowe Show. Don't let the words economics put you off. This is an episode of practical advice and insider stories that you don't want to skip through. Will Page was the first chief economist for Spotify. He played a key role in navigating the music industry through the major disruption of online piracy. You're going to get the inside scoop on the Taylor Swift Spotify spat. You're going to learn how Spotify make their money and how artists make their money. And you're going to find out who the next big artist is in the UK that's going to shake up the music industry. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Joining me today is former chief economist and for Spotify and author of the book Tarzan Economics, Will Page. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. No worries. Hey, how did you get involved in Spotify? Because you started off working for the government, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, so it's a, a strange journey of spending four years in Edinburgh working for the Government Economic Service. Wasn't the sexiest job in the world, wearing the customary black suit, blue shirt, red tie combination. But in the evening, I was pursuing my passion in music, doing anything I could to get into the music industry. And you know, I was writing for a magazine called Straight No Chaser. Interestingly, reviewing Fat Freddy's Drop was one of my first ever gigs. New Zealand band. Very good. Amazing New Zealand band. One of many great bands to come out of New Zealand. Um, and trying to build a career in music. But, you know, economist by day, music journalist, DJ, producer by night, could not understand why we didn't have an economist in the music industry. There was hundreds, if not thousands, of lawyers out there. And at that time, when the business was falling off a cliff due to piracy, those lawyers were getting busier and busier, suing people for file sharing, suing websites, suing ISPs. And uh, I wanted to become the first economist. So I got my break in 2006, where I got to move to London and become the chief economist for the PRS. You talk me through how that happened, because that's quite a funny story, isn't it? It is. Um, it happened by chance. And uh, for the video here, the original article I'll be referring to is actually pinned against the wall behind me here. But yeah, right. 16th of March, 2006, we have a kind of anniversary at the moment, I guess. I was leaving government after doing a really sexy job called local income tax reform. Gotcha. Oh, days. We've lost everyone already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get, on, I get on the bus to go home. And again, you know, you stress at this point, I was close to giving up my ambitions to get into the music business. And there's a Financial Times sitting on the bus. 
Okay, don't usually pick up other people's newspapers on buses, but it's the FT. And I'm browsing through it, seeing if there's anything of interest. And I, I stumble on this article on the back page, which had this headline, Digital Ants Wreck the Music Industry's Picnic. You know, this is the type of stuff I'm working on in my own time, which is, you know, how is digitization going to affect the music industry? You know, what happens to copyright when you've lost the right to control copying? After all, that's what copyright stands for. Long story short, my dad raised me never to be shy approaching people. And the worst I can tell you to do is to back off or words to that effect. And I wrote him a letter correcting some of his arguments, but also complimenting his overall theme. Thanks to picking up a newspaper on a bus, thanks to having the balls to write him a letter, he invited me to London uh, within two weeks um, to come and meet him and spent the entire day interviewing me in his office. There was a lot of economics that could find room to roam in this industry, just nobody had done it yet. And... If I hop, skip, and jump to the very last words of the book, they are, don't wait for your job description, create your job description. That's kind of what I did. I wrote the job description out and said, I believe this business needs an economist, and I want to be the first. Wow. Was that part of the design behind Spotify? I think the Spotify model came out of realizing, I'll paraphrase what Daniel X said at the time, that music consumption wasn't the problem facing the music industry. It was music monetization that we needed to fix. Now, a legal mindset would have said it's black and white. They're stealing. If you stop them from stealing, they'll start buying CDs again. Which is what they tried. Right. And they spent 10 years essentially holding onto that old vine, if I use this Tarzan economics analogy, of believing people were going to come back to purchasing music. The new vine was to say, well, why don't you beat piracy at its own game? The consumer's telling you something. I mean, Something I mentioned in the book when Adam Singer interviewed me, he said, you know what it means when you have no piracy? It means you've got no interest in your product. You know, piracy is sending you a signal that people like this stuff. But what music piracy was telling us was they like to visit the internet, have access to all the world's repertoire and do what the hell they please. Mm -hmm. Well, monetize that, stick a price tag on that experience and stop believing people are going to carry on buying a CD in a plastic case, which breaks your fingernails when you open it, only contains 13 songs, to which you might only like one or two, and believe that business model is going to carry forward. So Daniel had a, a build and they will come vision, which is build something that's better than stealing, and people will come and pay for it instead. And I think history shows that view to be correct. Tarzan Economics, the name of your book, and you mentioned it before, everyone has Tarzan Economics in their life. You know, Tarzan economics is everywhere. Do you want to give us a sort of a, an explanation for what that is? Well, I, I owe the title of the book to two things. One is a technologist called Jim Griffin, and the other is Norwegian bar prices. So I was in southern Norway at a music gathering in late 2006, 2007. And I met Jim Griffin, who's this wonderful technologist, responsible for the first ever digital music file sold on the internet, Aerosmith, in 1995. He came up with this term, Tarzan economics, and the, the idea is essentially that in life, not just in business, but in life, we hold on to the old vine of doing things, even when we know that vine is withering. It holds us above the jungle floor. It pays the bills for the next quarter. Mm. We are reluctant to reach out to the new vine through a fear of the unknown. And the trick here is working out when to let go and when to hold on. Because it was in Norway and because of something the economists call purchasing parity. Alcohol in Norway is really expensive. Yeah. You must stay sober enough that night to remember that expression, write it down. And the next morning I said, that was such a powerful term. I'm going to use that in a book one day. And here we are the day before publication. So thank you, Norwegian Bar Prices, but a special thank you to Jim Griffin, the technologist for the term. 
whenever I know someone that's going to Norway, I always give them two bits of advice. <laughs> buy, buy your alcohol and duty-free at the airport mm-hmm. and always offer the taxi driver cash. <laughs> Save yourself a lot. That's some, that's some economics for you. You can, you can use that in your next book. I, I want to go back to the music industry. One thing that I found really interesting is how that they used to calculate a number one hit or a number one album in the music industry. Um, it was a lot. A lot of it was not even down to sales, was it? It was down to how many CD, CDs were returned. Is that right? We call it in the business shipments. So let's say that Andy's a record label exec. It's the late nineties. He's taking helicopters to his private jet having his sushi flown in from oh, Japan yeah. for lunch and living the, living the life that was, you know, quite normal at the time, to be frank. Um, so we're going to structure a, a bonus system around something called certification, which is you've got a new record to put out. And if you can get platinum, which is a million records shipped, you will get your certification, a platinum record, and you will get your bonus and your incentive package to go with it. But shipments, what you send to the retailer, are not necessarily what gets sold. You know, you have this issue of returns. All retailers work on sale of returns. So if a record label says to a retailer, how many Guns N' Roses album will you take from me? The answer from the retailer is, how many will you give me? Because what I don't sell, I just return. So we have this distinction between what gets shipped, which qualified for certification, and what gets sold over the till. And it was an Australian uh, executive, a great guy uh, called Jeremy Fabini, who set up Mushroom Records in Australia. He told me this expression of ship platinum, receive gold. I was like, what does that mean? Well, what you were able to do is just ship a million records out, regardless of whether you're going to sell a million, because A, you got your certification, and B, you got your bonus. And whether half a million got returned back to the factory gate, a huge cost of record label is neither here or there. You, know, you cashed out. You know, that was the incentive mechanism. You shipped your platinum records. Who cares whether only half a million got sold? So the music industry is making money that way. And that's the current vine if we're talking about Tarzan economics. Then piracy comes along and that halves, right? Drives a tank division through the business. And remember, CDs were going up in price in 1999, up to maybe in the US, $15 a CD in Britain, 12, 13 pounds a CD. So yeah, the piracy came along at the turn of the millennium and just upended that model. And it's like a, a roller coaster ride. When you get to the very top, it's a long way down and all sorts of energies kick in on that descent as well. So yeah, I, I, I summarize music's journey as a sort of 20 year, two decade story where we made a complete dog's dinner of the first 10 years, fighting that piracy change, you know, fighting the problem. And then the second 10 years, embracing it and working with it. Music won its war against piracy when it stopped fighting it when it figured out, let's learn from what's happening here. Let's learn the signals consumers are giving us. And you can take a horse to water, or sometimes you have to take water to the horse. So you can hope that the consumer will go back to buying CDs or embracing the iTunes download model, which itself was quite controversial. A lot of people forget that when iTunes launched, rather than buy an album for 10, 15 pounds, you bought one or two tracks for a multiple 79 pence. And that itself unbundled the music industry you know, before you even consider piracy, but to assume people are going to go back to buying content as opposed to accessing it, there's many other industries now which are looking at similar predicaments. 
And you don't want to spend 10 years holding onto that old vine because that old vine is going to let go of you. That's the big lesson for me. So the idea to make the illegal legal, that came about in Sweden. Well, obviously, that's where Spotify is from, right? Yeah, I think I mentioned it in the book. I remember Hal Varian, the chief economist at Google, I was debating with him and he said, if you want to predict the future, just look at what rich people do and scale it. Because rising incomes means in 10 years' time, we'll all be doing what rich people do. And I said, well, I'll challenge that by saying, if you want to predict the future, look at what Swedish people do and scale that instead. There's arguments here or there, but you know, Sweden as a country is a fascinating you know, societal, you know, fascinating social economic model that you have there. Um, I'll give you a very quick example. I think Sweden will be the first country to properly give up on cash. Uh, I've been going up and down to Stockholm for well over a decade now. I've yet to see a single Swedish kroner in my entire existence. Really? Have not seen cash. And there is open debates there about the merits of just getting rid of cash altogether. The next door neighbors, Norway, have switched off their FM radio band. You know, it seems to me that both of those countries have this first mover element where they're very restless at sticking with things which don't make sense and they're willing to move on to something that does. I think that, that, that's a great way of capturing, I think, what happened with piracy made sense to Swedish people because why would you want to buy music? And then Spotify comes and says, well, here's something that's better than stealing. Let's buy that instead. Well, looking at Spotify as a startup idea, I look at Spotify and pay 10 quid per month and no ads, all the music I want, podcasts, whatever. I definitely listen to way more music than I pay for. Absolutely no question. How does Spotify make money from that? Grant, so the, the model in its simplest term is it's an option package. So you pay £10, you could fail to listen to a single song for a month, you could blast a Spotify 24 hours a day for a month. doesn't matter, you have a fixed price, like a buffet meal. And then there's a, a sort of revenue share allocation which works out. So we just keep it really simple. Um, you have £10, you'd strip off that. And then of what's left, around about 70% of that money is going out to rights holders, which is a combination of the record label and the artist on one side, the songwriter and the music publisher on the other side. And around 30% is kept by the platform itself as a margin as well. And then you'd see that Apple Music, Amazon Music, the same type of model exists there. But yeah, you have the option to be a heavy user or a light user, um, which is interesting because people can you know, take their choice. So, you know, what is it you're actually selling, as Peter Drucker famously reminds us? It's not necessarily what the consumer is buying. You, know, you just said, what if I listen to every song that's there and I really play it? Mm. Fine. What if you fail to make use of your service for six months? Totally fine as well. You've got the option value as opposed to a commitment and a transaction. You have the flexibility of an option to explore music at your will. For a musician, how do they make money from it? Because anyone could be streaming or not streaming. I read in the in the book that they get like 0.005 pounds per play on Spotify. So how, how do they make money from that? Yeah, it's it's a I think I've been explaining the stream model to managers for about 12 years now. I've been held against the wall by angry managers, you know, furious at their pay rates. And I have to always go through the same educational progress. So they let go of my neck, put my feet back on the floor and <laughs> buy me a pint and apologize. And it's a pretty standard procedure, but it is shocking to think that, wait, I listen to that song and that artist that I love gets half a penny per stream. Is that it? Is that it? Is that, is that how I'm supposed to compensate them? That's like, you know, 
let's be absolutely clear, there's no real direct compensation model that exists on the streaming platform between the artist and the fan. And that's something that could change you know, tomorrow that could be changing over the next couple of years. If you look at what Twitch is doing with musicians at the moment, you're seeing how you can subscribe to your favorite artist channel. So the money goes from you to the band um, as well. If you look at what Patreon is doing, you can see direct membership models there where you can support your favorite podcast on Patreon and make sure that money goes straight to that podcaster. In music, it's slightly different. There's more cooks in the kitchen involved, but the power stream needs to be disentangled. So We'll do a very quick example. Let's say Andy Rowe has written a great hit, uh, recorded a great hit, so you're the singer and the songwriter. We know it's on heavy rotation. And we get that song through lots of bribery and corruption on the BBC Radio 2 breakfast show. That song will earn about £150 for that one play. So wow. it gets played once on BBC, it'll get 150 quid. Yeah, and that's split between the artist and the songwriter. So... You know, you compare that to half a penny per stream and what's not to like? See you later, Spotify. I'll stick with radio. This is where it gets a little bit tricky. The value of that £150 is based on the fact that that song was broadcasted. Broadcast means one to many. Broadcasted to around about eight and a half million listeners. So take that £150 and divide it by eight and a half million listeners. And I think if I can do the math in my head, 0.00002 a fraction, a small fraction of the 0.005 that you would receive on Spotify. Right. And that's where the penny drops for most people, which is Spotify is monetizing this thing called a per stream on a one-to-one -one basis. You, Andy, listen to the song. This is your contribution to your unique actions because it's on demand. Whereas radio models are monetized based on a broadcast basis, which is one-to-many. You, Andy, host the BBC Radio 2 Breakfast Show, which 8 million listeners. This is the value of the song to all of those 8 million listeners at once. It must have been also hard to convince people to, in the music industry to, to change over to that model when they were getting maybe 40 quid for a, a CD. Yeah, and there's something else to be added there too, which is you're getting 40 quid for a CD up front because people buy that CD in the first week. Whether they open it, whether they listen to it, whether they listen to all the songs, nobody knows, but they bought it up front, so album drops and all the cash comes in the first month of a release. Completely different when we look at streaming, which is monetizing the consumption and consumption might start off low, but grow over time. So sales are upfront loaded and decay, whereas streams are back-ended and grow. Wasn't easy to convince Taylor Swift, was it? So first thing to say is, please, if we're going to discuss Taylor Swift, let's discuss her music, because that's what people are failing to do, because this whole fallout with Spotify, I think, overshadowed it a bit, unfortunately. So a great record, but her concerns were actually quite articulate. As, by the way, were many other people. Your top York's concerns were quite articulate too. They've just blown up in the media as this kind of hate Spotify thing. Um, but her concerns were, I don't mind my content being on the premium tier, the first class carriage at Spotify, where you, as you mentioned earlier, are paying your 10 pound a month. I just don't want it on the free tier. And that's a view perfectly reasonable view. There's an alternative view, which is we need content on both tiers to A, win the battle against piracy, B, fill up the funnel, and C, grow this business to a level where it can start having a real impact on the global business. So there's an interesting, very intelligent debate to be, to be had there, understanding the role of the free tier in Spotify and other streaming platforms is really crucial. 
Um, I'll give you an analogy. It's like putting coal in the fire. What the free tier does is it shoves coal in the fire so the fire can keep burning mm. and producing premium subscribers. Taylor Swift wasn't the only one, was she? Because there was a, a band, Volpec. <laughs> they came up with some novel ideas, didn't they? Well, I definitely recommend to your listeners to look at the Volpec interview on the day of Spotify's IPO because it's absolutely hilarious. Um, very, very uh, intelligent and articulate frontman who questions the streaming model. And he rightly points out, you know, this whole thing's just a big gamble and who knows where it's going to go next. Are we going to get an all-you-can-eat model for Whole Foods? <laughs> it's just <laughs> quite clever. Um, but he does make a point. Um, but what they did was they had the Sleepify album where they spotted that, you know, to get paid on the streaming service, you have to be played for more than 30 seconds. So that's the house rule. Okay, so if you're streaming that song for more than 30 seconds, boom, you now initiate or ignite a royalty payment. But you don't get paid a penny more for lasting a second more. So why write long songs? So to protest against some of the absurdities of the streaming model, in their opinion, they had the Sleepify album, which is a collection of silent songs, which lasted 31 seconds each. And if you listen to them all on repeat, A, you could sleep to the music. And B, you'll be generating lots of money. I think the band made something like $20,000, which allowed them to go on tour by having the Sleepify album on the platform. There's been a few of those, but yeah, it's just an interesting quirk of the model. There's always these weird quirks, whatever you design, whether it be CD sales, downloads, streaming, but that was a really interesting one of just acknowledging like how the compensation model works. Yeah, they got their fans to play play it while they went to bed didn't they because there was, yeah. was all silence <laughs> it's crafty it's crafty looking at um that what you were talking about with the the 30 second part that's that ties in to the next thing i wanted to talk about because you talk about the war on illegal downloads now the biggest war is the war for attention the attention economics is what you call it isn't it yeah the idea of attention for me is whatever you're trying to do in life, be it individuals, companies, governments, the challenges you're facing with disruption, start with attention. That's your base one. That's your first fork in the road. Like the business can fold out of understanding the new economy of attention. And that chapter, by the way, is called paying attention, which I think is a fascinating expression that we have in the English language. We ask you to pay attention. School teachers in classrooms today are saying, kids, pay attention. We use a currency of pay. In other languages, offer, share, or give attention. In English, we say pay. So there's definitely a currency to attention and is the type of attention you're working on, such as a podcast, gin and tonic, that is, it can complement other things, such as going for a run or a walk. Sure does. You know, I listen to your podcast when I'm walking out at the park. It clears my head. Um, or is it different brands of gin? That is, so are you competing or are you complementing? That's the first question. And that's base two. Base three to get the home run here is to then get to grips with contestability. I am late to the party. You will laugh at this, but I've only just discovered a series on Netflix called Breaking Bad. Sorry. I know that (laughs) Breaking Bad predates iPhone because they're all holding Nokia phones. It's been around for a while. Yeah. But I am now allocating at least two times 48 minutes every evening to catching up on Breaking Bad so I don't feel so socially inferior. Maybe three. So we're talking here about giving two to three hours a night. That's three hours that Netflix wins that everybody else loses. Spotify loses, Apple Music loses, Taylor Swift loses, Katy Perry loses, Instagram loses, Facebook loses, which means everybody else who's trying to seek for attention, including your podcast, will lose. Everybody else 
has increasingly less time to compete for. There's work time, there's sleep time, there's commute time. You know, where else can you get into that window? So I use Netflix as a real life example of just how you have monopolists in attention where they win, everyone else has to lose, which means everyone else has less time to gain from as a result. So what's the point of the 30 second thing? Because that ties into mm. the attention part of it. In the case of music, if it is the case that I only get paid after you've played me for more than 30 seconds and I don't get paid for any a second more of time, two things are beginning to happen in songs. Firstly, they're getting shorter. And um, if you think about Lil Nas X, the huge hit that he had, I think that wrapped up under two minutes and 16 seconds. You know, previously we'd think about a pop hit lasting three minutes, 30, 40 seconds. You know, we think about the rock era and um, songs would go on for four to five minutes. Stairway to Heaven went on for seven. Um, now songs are coming in well under three minutes. So songs are getting shorter, which makes sense because you're not getting paid for duration. Second point is a lot of songwriters are putting the chorus at the front. More often than not now, the hit songs at the top of the charts will have the chorus right at the front to hook you in. Because attention is so scarce, because there's so many distractions, a wealth of information leads to a poverty of attention. Because we're dealing with this imbalance, I got to hook you in. So rather than give you the time to build a song into a verse, into a bridge, into a chorus, screw that. Shove the chorus right at the front and hook you in. And if I can get 31 seconds out of your attention span, I'm making bank. The backdrop to this for me is my favorite song by the band U2 called Where the Streets Have No Name. It takes two minutes and eight seconds before you hear Bono's voice. Do you think any millennial today is going to give you two minutes and eight seconds before they hear the vocals drop? Or are they going to hit the skip button? That's crazy. That song would have never gone anywhere. Right. <laughs> when this is an anthem that's changed people's lives across Irish America back in the 80s, I don't think it would stand any chance whatsoever being picked up today because two minutes, eight seconds, Lil Nas X song was pretty much fading out by that point. You know, yeah. so it's, it's remarkable. Now, when you start to think about how the streaming model is affecting songwriting, songs getting shorter, choruses going to the front. Another good example, Drake, I think his last album had 26 songs, some lasting 47 seconds. Can anybody see what he's doing here? Don't need to be an economist to spot the economics. Um, right. Is to remind pumping out more songs, yeah, and, and making them short, like less work, more money. Optimizing, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, it's reminding ourselves we've been here before. And the example I always like to remind myself when I panic about technology and art and you know, the tail wagging the dog is is jukeboxes in the late 50s, early 60s. Jukeboxes in America were generally run by the mafia, the money-making machine, called cash. And the mafia would demand that songs lasted two minutes, 30 seconds. Why? Because you'd maximize revenue from the jukebox. Right. In comes Motown. So we've been here before, but you know what we're dealing with now is a fascinating way in which the streaming culture is changing songs forever. And in, you know, to flip it back to you and in your industry of podcasting, we're now looking at two new podcasts happening every minute. Really? Right. I've yeah. got no show. <laughs> so how on earth does Andy Rowe stand above the crowd in that increasingly crowded market? The podcast world right now, I call it the Wild West. It's a crapshoot. No one knows where it's going. And you're fortunate and you've absolutely struck gold in what you're doing. But for every you know, winner, there's a thousand losers who are failing to get noticed. But I think a next chapter of podcasts will be in the live event space. 
And if you think about quite a few podcasts which have gone on the road, my dad wrote a porno, it's a great example of a successful podcast on the road. Some of them are creating the podcast from scratch on stage. So podcasts have niche audiences. You know, Joe Rogan's perhaps the biggest podcast is still a niche audience. It's a big niche audience, but mm. still a niche, you know, passionate fan base to what Joe Rogan is doing. So, you know, if you go on the road, something interesting happens to the economics, which is if you create the podcast on stage, let's say in a public theater in Leicester on a wet Tuesday night in November, and you can get 2000 people coughing up 40 quid to come and see that podcast being created live on stage in that public theater in Leicester on a wet Tuesday night in November, you're turning the cost of content creation into a revenue stream. That's genius. That's genius. I'm getting paid to create content. And the content I create, I'll monetize again when it goes back on the platform instead of getting to 2,000 people, gets to 200,000 people on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and all the main podcasting apps. Megan Trainer, all about that base, that song that she went to number one with, she mm. drew a crowd in a very novel way, didn't she? Yeah, it's uh, an example for me of where crowds can be drawn from the most unusual places. And in music, as with the rest of media, what you're really dealing with is the order of events. What order did hits used to you know, form? And that, what order do we see them forming today? And the old way was break a song on radio, sell it in the shops. In 2014, Megan Trainor is all about that. It became a huge hit. It's a very, very catchy tune. It's got a kind of throwback style, which makes you feel like you've heard it before. And uh, we were looking at the order that it became a hit. And the first thing that happened for her was Shazam. People were using their phones and their Shazam app to tag it, to say, what's that song? Send me the information so I can find out the name of it. Then there was streams. Then after that, there were sales. And then many months after that, there was radio. But where are the Shazam tags happening from? We don't get it. Like you tag Shazam when you hear songs on radio. You're driving in your car, okay, or on a handheld, whatever, but you can quickly use the Shazam feature to get the name of that song and you'll follow it up later when you have the time. That, that's how Shazam works. And where, where were the tagging coming from? We just didn't have the answer. We had a great case study, but it was a glass half full or a glass half empty. Now, a year later, um, leaving the office, and a friend of mine, Emily Blake, real street smart within Spotify, she'd come back from Seattle after working with Starbucks and some joint venture. She, I was leaving the office just saying goodbye to her, and she's like, Paigey, come here. You have to see this. Like, what? I said, that Megan Trainor case study. Blakey, that was ages ago. Why is that of interest? She said, no, 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 no. Starbucks are just talking about it. Here, look at my notes. And they're convinced that that's where the Shazam tags came from. You keep, keep telling me that it didn't get played on radio for months after it was blowing up on Shazam. Starbucks is a radio station. So if you think about it, I think the numbers were staggering, like 20, 30 million, maybe even more Americans will spend half an hour every morning queuing, ordering, and slurping Starbucks coffee. Right. During that time, guess what's happening? They're listening to music. During that time, guess what they're doing? Playing around with their smartphones. And guess what happens when you hear a song they feel like they've heard before, all about that bass, and they've got their iPhones in their pockets, they're starting to tag on Shazam. And I was just like, wow, that's the missing piece of the puzzle. You know, Starbucks are far bigger than any radio station in America. Starbucks are playing as part of their in-store um, creation right. system. They are not a radio station. They don't specialize in music, but <laughs> pause right there. They do draw crowds. Veganomics comes into drawing a, a crowd as well, doesn't it? Yeah. So 
let's say that me, you, and a bunch of friends are going out for a post-lockdown dinner, and there's the 10 of us going out to pick a restaurant, mm -hmm. and one happens to be vegan, and everyone else is you know, going to be eating steaks, chicken, whatever, but there's one vegan person that, that you know, like, if you think about a restaurant and a menu, a menu is a great way to visualize choice, right? Because it's giving you a lot of options, it's giving you prices next to those options, and it's allowing you to select. So as an economic experiment, menus are fantastic things. And if you did a long tail chart for a restaurant, I could guarantee you that the top two or three dishes are going to make up 95% of the business. And a rational economic thinker would say, well, let's snap the tail because clearly we only have to offer these three dishes to keep 95% of our business. And we don't have to offer all this choice. We have to be inclusive to all this level of diversity. Note the choice of language here. Mm. But if our 10 friends are going to go out for a big post-lockdown meal to celebrate Scotland beating France and England away, obviously, and <laughs> one of those 10 friends is vegan and that restaurant doesn't offer the vegan dish, well, that person's down in the tail, snap it off, and who cares? They're a small part of our overall business. But their actions affect that of the nine friends that have to go and dine with them. So you don't just lose the vegan diner down in the tail. You lose all the meat and chicken eaters up in the head as well because they can't go out as a collective. And so much has been written about the long tail over the years, but I think that point often gets lost, which is you need the tail. How, like, if we're looking at Tarzan economics as a whole now and the vine you know you're on the old vine you you're wondering when is the right time to swing to that new vine how do you even work that out how do you identify it's all very well looking back at the music industry going oh yep that they they hung on to it for 10 years too long mm -hmm. how do we know if we're in our own situation is there a way to find out when the right time is to make the big move the example I draw on music, uh, again, I, this is not bragging rights, but getting economics into the debate is absolutely crucial. Quite often, this debate facing individuals, organizations, governments will ignore the economics because it deals with the inconvenient truths. I mean, my job in the PRS was essentially dealing with inconvenient truths and avoiding getting fired. That's a tricky career path. Mm. So if I think about the debate about access versus ownership, sales versus dreams that we had. The one clincher for me was just looking at the percentage of the population that was spending nothing on music, a big fat zero. And why this is relevant was back then the fear was cannibalization. If I gave up and there's this horribly sexist term on 50 pound a month, man, personally would spend 50 pounds a month on HMV on CDs in return for 10 pound a month streaming man, again, another sexist term, but you know, I'm giving up analog dollars to collect digital dimes and that doesn't make sense. What I was really focused on was the average spend of those who spend is falling. People are spending less and less on buying CDs or downloads, but the percentage of the population that's actually spending anything is falling off a cliff. So your biggest challenge is not cannibalization, it's the fact the majority of your population is giving you zero and you can't cannibalize zero, period. In the railway privatization model in the 90s, which here in this country was quite frankly a bit of a disaster, but there was a big debate around then about, you know, should we include price discrimination into our ticketing prices? So buy the ticket really upfront, you get it cheaper, you know, buy it on the day you have to pay more. This was a novel idea for train pricing. And the whole debate back then was, 
this would cannibalize our existing train customers. And Rory Sutherland, who I quote in the book, had this wonderful story of you know, dealing with that situation at the time, advising the train companies on pricing. And his, his view was exactly like mine. He said, your problem is more than two thirds of the British population never take a train. They're zeros. How are you going to get them to put their first foot on a train in the first time in five, 10 years is, a, is the challenge. What you do once you've got them, once those zeros become ones, is a completely different thing. Uh, but that's a situation that they were dealing with in the 90s. And then maybe bringing it back up to date of like knowing when to apply tariffs and economics, the newspaper industry, you know, might be sweating about whether the, the, the subscription model is going to cannibalize physical sales, whether the advertising on the physical could be damaged by the lack of advertising on subscription, you know, stop right there. Why am I subscribing for a newspaper and still getting the ads? It's a topical question to have. And that's going to apply to the podcast well pretty soon. If I subscribe to your podcast, why am I getting adverts? Or do I still anticipate the adverts? But yeah, I mean, I think the problem with newspapers is the vast majority of the population don't read newspapers. How are you going to get to them? Mm. That's a reach question, not a revenue question. So optimize for reach, not revenue to remain relevant. Right. So go after the people that aren't involved rather than the people that try and trying to keep in, trying to keep the people that are leaving. Yeah, I think back home, the entire broadsheet readership of the main newspaper titles in Scotland wouldn't fill Murrayfield Stadium anymore. Right. That's crazy, right? Murrayfield's not that big. Yeah, and but the Herald and the Scotsman combined would still leave empty seats in Murrayfield Stadium. Your problem is not how do you monetize your readership? Your problem is you've lost your readership. How do you yeah. win them back? And that's a great example of whatever you're holding on to ain't working. You need to reach out to something new to make it really work. So that's the simple thing is letting go of the old vine when it's not working right for you or it's getting you're getting lower to the forest floor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the Scotsman's offices in Edinburgh, last time I was home, has been taken over by Rockstar Games, which are the creators of Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. Sign of the times. I remember that when that building was built at the height of newspaper circulation, like real prominence of place. This is the Scotsman's HQ, and now it's a gaming company, which is <laughs> tells you a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a sign of the times, all right. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs. United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Discover Weekly is a big part of Spotify, isn't it? Uh, but but you guys you guys tried loads of stuff before Discover Weekly got popular. It was 2015 when we launched Discover Weekly, and you're right, up until that point, we had talked to talk about curation at scale, but really failed to walk the walk. We had this kind of vision that an algorithm could determine taste, which by the way is like second nature today. It's mm. only five and a half, six years on from the launch of Discover Weekly, and it's taken for granted. But back then, 
that was the vision, just nobody had proved it could work. And we launched Discover Weekly in the summer of 2015, around about the same time as Apple Music launched. So it's like streaming got competitive. And we put out this product with no real sort of push around it. We were putting out products left, right, and center, you know, throwing lots of things at a wall and seeing what sticks. It's essentially what tech companies have to do. But this one took off. I mean, this one went ballistic. And we had a story go out that autumn, which is 40 million people had experienced Discover Weekly. 40 million people had 40 million unique playlists. And let's just reel back and remind ourselves what it is. It means every Monday, if you open up your client, Spotify's prepared for you 30 songs just on Andy Rao's taste. No one else's, just your taste. That's it. The broadcast model we discussed earlier with radio, where you have a one-to-many Chris Evans on the BBC Radio 2 breakfast show at the time says, I want you to like Pelham Latini because I think it's great. So we all have to listen to it. Mm. Well, toss that out the window because now we've got a model which says, I know exactly what Andy Rao likes. I'm going to prepare 30 songs just for him. And his best friend that he's known since school days, they're going to get a different 30 songs just for them too. So there's nothing you guys have got in common. There's nothing you can share over the water cooler on a Monday morning. You know, did you hear that song this morning? No, because Discover Weekly was different for me than it was for you. So that got launched, got pushed out. It was a huge success and really said this thing could really work. Like curation at scale is a reality now. And now we're walking the walk as well as talking the talk. But what we couldn't explain was why it was successful. That was the interesting thing. I couldn't get to what made this thing work when so many other things failed. And I did a lot of work with Matthew Ogle, who built Discover Weekly, joined the company in January 2015, launched it in July 2015. So in the space of six months of joining a tech company, changed media forever. Quite an achievement when you think about it. And we're like, well, what's the cause? Like, let's go from correlation to causation. What made this thing explode when nothing else worked? And a great lesson for an economist or an anti-economist is to give up on economics and look down other academic corridors for inspiration. So I looked at behavioral economics, which basically means steal ideas from the psychology department. I looked at that to get inspiration, approached Richard Thaler, the Nobel Prize winning economist, and a superstar in the film, The Big Short, if you've seen that film, he appears in the scene. Yeah, great scene. movie. Yeah, with Selena Gomez, where he explains like behavioral economics, the hot hands fallacy, if a basketball player gets it in the hoop three times, of course he's going to get it in the fourth. You know, if house prices keep on going up for three years straight, of course they're going to keep, up going, on, keep on going up in the fourth year. And really incredible contribution. I got to him and his MBA students to do a project to try and understand, you know, what behavioral uh, economics could teach us about Discover Weekly success. And you know what I discovered? What did you discover? Nothing. <laughs> Six months. Six months studying everything that we could. We had some great ideas. You know, one was, is the consumer aware that it's perishable? That you've only got seven days to get your Discover Weekly. And if they're not, what would happen if they did? What happened if we prompted you like an airline company to say, only two days to go before we take away your Discover Weekly and replenish it with a new 30-some playlist? Yeah. Couldn't really uncover anything. So I had to go back to the great professor completely empty-handed and say, I've got nothing to show for my efforts. Thank you for letting me work with your students, but we scored blanks here. And he was really fascinated with a piece of academic research called the Fresh Start Initiative, which says that people generally are always responsive to new things at the start of the working week, start of the working month, start of the year, the New Year's resolution theory. But you know, the, all the work that this team had done was pointing to the role of Monday as being that's why people are receptive to new things. So you could have had all the data, all the numbers, everything. 
they would never have given you the answer. Data dashboards coming out of our ears, but not one of them looked at the role of the day of the week. Not one of them considered the psychology or the behavioral aspects of the consumer. And my jaw is just hanging off the floor. Like, how did you conclude that? The first thing that came into my mind, and he said, it's because you launched it on a Monday, was back at Kentish Town Tube Station in North London, it's Monday when you see people in the bright jackets promoting yoga classes or gym membership. Gym membership always has and always will be promoted on Mondays because of that fresh start initiative. Right, yeah. They knew this all along. They're not qualified data scientists. They use some common sense. Same role of the day of the week, I think, was an absolute pivotal feature. And I spoke to Matthew Ogler who was writing the book, like, how do we write this section up? I want to make sure we're absolutely accurate here. And it's like, you're right. Like, nobody had considered the role of the day of the week. We had time of day. We had platform of consumption. We had time zone. We had saves and skips. You know, we had all these data points, but what we didn't have was some basic common sense, like a gym membership model has, which is hit them on a Monday and you'll get more uptake. People like to do something new on a Monday. Tuesday, they're down the pub, but Monday, I'll join a gym. So, you know, there's a real, that chapter is called Big Data, Big Mistakes, which is to accept big data has achieved amazing things, but we've got to be wary of losing sight of basic common sense. Uh, I think that can often get cornered with the, with the addiction to big data. All right, let's finish things off now with your top three bits of advice for people, for average Joe that's listening to this podcast that doesn't know much about economics, or they might. What are the top three bits of advice for pivoting through probably one of the most disrupted periods of our lives being COVID and all the changes that we've had over the last year or so? One is don't assume that by not studying economics, you're somehow at a disadvantage. You know more economics than you know. And remind ourselves there was economics long before there was economists. That's the inconvenient truth my profession has to deal with. You, know, you can work a lot of this stuff out irrespective of what you studied at university or college or whatever. So do not assume that you need to understand economics to read the book or to apply even the concepts raised in TARS and economics. Two would be found in a chapter in the middle of the book called Make or Buy. I think you're right. Post-pandemic, we're all staring at a Napster moment now. The pandemic has accelerated change that was already in place. The high street was already screwed before the pandemic. It's double screwed now. How many people go back to the high street given the adoption of online shopping, for example? So the chapter Make or Buy simply asks a really good, solid perennial question that will never go away, regardless of the environment, the culture, the technology, which is, you know, can you go it alone? Or do you need to seek control to intermediaries? And I think that's a really good way of thinking about the value of the book is, you know, we all ask that question. Should I just be a consultant for the rest of my life and work for hire? Or do I need to join a firm and be part of a hierarchical structure? You're going back here to 2007 and Radiohead were asking a make or buy question, just like so many of us ask today. And the question we're saying is, we're free of our record label. Do we seek control to another intermediary and re-sign another major record label deal? Or shall we just go alone with this album, Rainbows, and put it out ourselves? And long story short, um, there's, an, there's an expression in the music industry which goes, if you want loyalty, get yourself a dog. So after years and years of being with EMI Records, they decided to tell them to go get a dog. And they went alone and released in Rainbows. And there was five ways that you could get in Rainbows. Five. 
Most people think of one. That's not the point of the story. The point is there's five ways of getting it. There's a famous one, which is a tip jar model, where you can volunteer the price that you wanted. If you wanted to give the band zero, you could get the album legally for zero. You know, they were fighting free, illegal free, with legal free. Then there was a CD box set for 45 pounds. Then there was a CD in the shops, uh, which was number one in like 20 countries. Then there was a download album on iTunes for the first time in the band's history, which also got to the top of the charts. And then there was rampant piracy of the album. Five ways to get 10 songs, each one of them popular. And they learned so much from those five different experiments as well. So by going it alone, they were able to learn so much about what their content mean to their fans. And so many ways of measuring their success. My favorite one, I think, was Brian Message. And forgive me if I get the numbers wrong, but pre in rainbows he played to 20,000 people in san francisco post in rainbows he played to 60,000 not bad for a band in 2007 that was formed let me just get this right i think they formed in 1985-86 so they've seen every format change you can imagine in the music business they were a real front line of that now why is that relevant to your listeners well that maker by option is existing everywhere patreon for podcasters is a great example of do you, should Andy Rao sign a contract with the BBC or could he pursue a really successful career by just going it alone and getting people to support him on Patreon? Completely viable question there. I think the third point is just, I'm going to roll it back to the role of government here, but it's just to remind ourselves that what matters most is what gets measured least. So when we're measuring the state of the recovery, what sort of recovery do we want to, we want to measure? I mean, Andy, think about it this way. I could measure the economic recovery by tracking pollution levels. If that was the exam question, tell me when we're back to our pre-recovery level after this pandemic's over, I could point to pollution levels and say, there's your answer. Is that really the type of recovery that we want? Or would we want to measure it a different way? Um, where is all of this technology in our government accounts? What has Zoom meant to us for the past 14 months? Everything, too much of everything even. Where does it sit in GDP? I'm not even sure whether it's there. So I just want to stress what matters most in our lives is often what's being measured least by the government when we discuss this thing called the economy. And I think that's a really important point. Wikipedia is the sum of all the world's knowledge, does zero environmental damage, and adds nothing to gross domestic product, the economy. You can think of lots of things which are not the sum of all the world's knowledge, do horrible environmental damage, and add lots to the economy. What matters most is what gets measured least. Very, very interesting. And before I completely wrap things up, you were the former chief economist for Spotify, the biggest music platform on the planet. It would only be right for you to let the listener know who the next big thing is. Who's your band? Who are you listening to? I got them for you. Uh, I really have. I'm so convinced with this band. Name's going to be interesting, but we're going to have to get you the spelling as well. The band is called Salt. Salt. And it's spelled with a U. That's an S-A-U-L-T. Salt. No one knows who they are. Nobody knows what they look like. This band are doing a completely different route to market. Their albums have no sort of photo shot of the musicians. They're very incognito. But their music... Andy, just trust me, attention is scarce, but I need you to give me more than two minutes, 15 seconds. I need you to give me more than 30 seconds even to listen to this band's music. It comes from the heart. It affects the soul. It gets you close. Like there's one thing missing from music today is intimacy. 
like David Bowie, who we lost five years ago almost, you know, said, well, what, you know, music's going to be water coming out of a tap. It's just background. This is foreground. This is music's going to draw you in. So this band is collective called Salt. I really want to stress to your listeners. Um, and I know what they've got coming down the pipe. I actually met up with them earlier this morning. If it sounds like a strange banding now, this time next year, you know, headlining Glastonbury is not inconceivable. Really? So they're nowhere now and they could be headlining Glastonbury next year. You're that confident. Andy, it's weird, right? Because they were bubbling just before lockdown. And there's a lot of bands out there. And I really feel for this. Music is gregarious. I mean, you, credit to you and what you've done with your podcast. But we need to be in person hustling mm. for ideas. You know, that's where it's the corridors where the action happens, not on the conference stage. I've always said that. And that's how music works. And they were just on the, on the cusp of getting it on before lockdown. And then you know, the pandemic basically cut them down to their knees. They kept on releasing content, kept on being active, but kept on doing it in this very incognito fashion where all you get to know is this weird spelling of the band's name, S-A-U-L-T, Soul. The bubbling is still going on. It hasn't gone off the boil yet, but uh, what's going to be happening over the next few months with this band? Huge, huge, like on a scale. Trust me, I would, I would, I'm not going to risk my reputation lightly as a DJ with chart-topping sets on Mixcloud, but... This is the one. I've never heard anything like it since Massive Attack. Part of your job was also to to look at how songs were put together, weren't wasn't it? So so do you think this Salt has the right science behind it to be successful? They're not chasing a sound, right? They're not right. chasing a sound. It's not, you know, this artist, you know, Coldplay's been successful, so every record label signs a band that sounds like Coldplay. That's a herd-like behavior, which I think is quite damaging for music and culture. They're, I think what streaming's enabled is just a thousand different flowers to bloom. You know, it's a crowded space, but they're all getting a chance. They're all one press for your thumb on a piece of glass away from being discovered. And what I like about Salt is it's not cluttered up. A lot of production today is very compressed. We talked about the chorus going to the front. Just grab your attention, compress the sound, push it out there. Salt's far more intimate, far more hollow sound. You know, it's asking for you to come to them, not for them to come to you. And, it's so mysterious, just like no identity, no photograph, just let the music do the talking. It's so refreshing to see that happen in the current day and age. And if that collects for the millennial generation, which has got the attention span of 30 seconds on TikTok, I'd be so happy. Yeah. It's awesome. So, I look forward to it. It's going to be uh, interesting to watch that space. Will, thank you so much for coming on the show. Your book, Tarzan Economics, is out now. As I said, I failed economics badly at school but this book made a lot of sense to to even me uh, it's filled it with examples and stories about how to pivot through disruption and come out the other side just like the music industry did thanks again for listening don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review if you like this episode and give it a share maybe yeah give it a share hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.